0: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
1: Hello, all you Peter King podcast listeners. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little bit more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash Peter King, podsurvey.com slash Peter King, and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed this quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card terms and conditions apply. Again, podsurvey.com slash Peter King. Thanks for your help. Welcome to the Peter King podcast the post-Super Bowl edition of the Peter King Podcast. I'm joined, as always, uh, by my friend from NBC Sports, Paul Burmeister. Later on in the podcast, we'll have a guest, uh, Ron Rivera, uh, the Washington Commanders football coach. And before then, we're going to dissect all things NFL from the Super Bowl, and then we're going to look ahead to what will be a busy and I think quite transactional, NFL off season. Paul, good morning. I am in Seattle this morning. I've uh, just spent some um, some grandson time at my daughter's home here in Seattle with with little Peter and uh, Peter Leo Burek, and so we're having a having a very nice morning out here in Seattle. How are you?
2: Doing well. I, I enjoyed the picture you sent of, of your grandson, little Peter there, and I brought back a lot of good memories from little guys and their uh, fuzzy zip-up onesies and uh, all <laughs> the fun things that they do. We, we have different issues here with the 16-year-old and the 12-year-old. I'm I'm uh, driving with my 16-year-old, so you're you're being a granddad and uh, having fun and smiling, and I'm, I'm uh, white-knuckling it as my son learns how to drive on I-95. living different lives here Peter on on opposite coasts
1: hey I don't want to alarm you Paul but uh my daughter Laura the first day she had her driver's license in Montclair New Jersey backed into a car so (laughs) just just I I don't mean to be a bad omen guy but be careful
2: (laughs) I, I, I appreciate the heads up there we we have avoided that so far but we're awfully early into this phase of life
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, Paul,
1: there's so much to get to in this Super Bowl and about the future of Sean McVay and who should have been MVP. Um, I think maybe what is so interesting to me overall about this game and about this postseason is I just don't remember another one like it. Um, The last seven games of this postseason, one game was decided by six points And the other six games were all decided by three points. And so many things about this game, I thought maybe a good idea would be uh, your suggestion. You know, let's look at, you know, each each team, each unit from the standpoint of how they matched up against the other unit. And, And I'll just start off by giving you one overarching opinion. So a week ago, I was on, pardon the interruption, uh, the Kornheiser and Wilbon show, and they said, who do you like? And I said, I like the Bengals with an asterisk. And that asterisk is, if they can protect Joe Burrow better than they protected him against Tennessee, I'll take the Bengals. And if not, you know, I, I don't like the Bengals. And that, I, I i mean, look, I'm not patting myself on the back, but that is precisely how this turned out. The Bengals would have won the game if they could have managed the protection in the last 35 minutes of this game of Joe Burrow. And particularly, obviously, in the on the last drive when Aaron Donald got free twice and wrecked uh, the last two plays of this game. But I think seldom, Does the pregame storyline match up so vividly and so perfectly to what exactly happened in this game? And it was exactly what happened in this game that just sort of came to life late.
2: Ram's ability to really affect Burrow and limit him. And as you pointed out, the last kind of two and a half quarters, uh, really shine through for Los Angeles. I, I think last week at this time, Peter, I kind of wondered aloud when we were talking about all the many storylines that might play out and be significant. I, I said, you know, can Joe Burrow have that kind of success on third down that he had at Kansas City in the AFC title game? Not just throwing the ball, but running it as well. And their complete lack of success on third and also fourth down uh, to me was, I mean, in Four a game where there was overall. No. Yeah, exactly.
1: The Bengals were on third and fourth down.
2: hundred percent. And in a game where there were so many things that mattered, if I could start with one overarching thought, uh, one that I was thinking about, you know, a week or two ago, the Rams were just good enough on third and fourth down. And the Bengals weren't even close to good enough from start till the end of the game in those situations.
1: Yeah. Paul, what did you think of, I think, you know, I talked to one NFL coach. Uh, Friday at the Super Bowl who was there and he said my feeling about this game and I feel very very strongly is that the key to this game for the Bengals is Joe Mixon and he has to make enough plays to make the the line of the Rams respect the fact that you're going to be able to run the ball and I just got the feeling other than the two uh, plays that mix and leak through the line for gains of 10 or 10 or more they just never got that going at all and I think you know it's funny Aaron Donald during the season always would say he said listen it's not all about me and everybody said oh he's just deflecting it's about the rest of the guys here it's about Floyd it's about Gaines it's about Sebastian Day and it's he, he was he was absolutely totally correct This was a team effort. Now, he was the big gun on the last drive, but this was a team effort on that defensive line that I think wrecked the game uh, and beat the Bengals.
2: I like your thought on Joe Mixon because I was watching him a lot too. And in the end, Peter, I think he had 15 carries, which is a nice amount for him. It works into their formula well, but he wasn't a difference maker at all. And I would have loved to see them get the ball to him out of the backfield of the passing game more often. Uh, The Rams didn't do it a lot with Henderson, but he picked up a couple of huge plays in the passing game, uh, just enough to keep drives going. And I think those plays led the points as well. And Mixon is a really good catcher of the ball out of the backfield. And he was not a part of the game that way uh, in a game where they really could have used him to be. Uh, I'll bring up that last drive, Peter. They had second and one, they being the Bengals uh, with two timeouts left at midfield. And, you know, there were opportunities there. They had the timeouts. They only had to get 12 or 15 more yards work it to him out of the backfield somehow. Uh, I mean, it's, it's easy to say two days later, uh, but to your point about how he was such a key to the game, there were chances to get him involved in the passing game and they just never did it.
1: Here's the other part where I think, and I talked to, I had sort of a poignant moment after the game. Um, You know, look, we don't get the access that we normally get. Uh, after a game because we can't get into the locker room and they're keeping the distance of the coaches and players from the media. I understand. I'm not in any way angry or anything about it, but I'll tell you what I found interesting. After the game, I was waiting for the media area to open with players and coaches coming in. And just outside the media area was the Bengals locker room and out came Uh, Zach Taylor, the head coach of the Bengals. And he did an interview for, I think, um, maybe Westwood one, I I don't really know, but it was with Mike Golick. Um, And so I think I just stood there and I listened to the interview. And then he saw me, I saw him. And I walked the 20 feet, 20, 20 yards, maybe to the media area with him. And the one thing I said to him was, you know, no matter what anybody says, you guys got farther. There will be there will be contentious debate about certain calls. But just know that you got farther than anybody thought you would get. And really, congratulations. I I, I could not at that point nitpick with Zach Taylor <laughs> at, at that point. Uh, but and so I just walked him over there. We had a short conversation. He went in there, but. Had we been in a less uh, sort of forced, you know, sh- very short 12 to 15 second window of time, I think I probably would have said two things. Second and one, Rams 49, 54 seconds left, yep. two timeouts. And the two play calls were uh, a deep shot to, Jamar Chase, I get it. I, I, I get it. You're trying to win the game. I, I'm mostly okay with that. But then Samaje Pirine, who I'm not saying that he is uh he's a bad player, I don't mean this, but this is a marginal NFL football player, and the first step is uh, you know, he tries to go over the right side of the line. And first of all, I don't know why you're running at Aaron Donald. I I, I don't know why, but they did. And then the second one, obviously, uh, they didn't block Donald enough and uh, Burrow threw incomplete, but it was it was just him, you know, getting rid of the ball. He was desperate. But those two plays, quite honestly, they bothered me. It really yeah. bothered me at the time and now looking back in retrospect I do think that Zach Taylor on his final three snaps of this NFL season he's going to look back and he's going to say hey listen 12 13 yards yeah I'm, I've got a field goal kicker who has just had the best rookie season of any kicker in the 102 year history of the NFL all I need to get is and, and again it's easy to say all I need to get is yeah. 12 or 13 yards, but you've got two timeouts left. You've got 40 uh 48 seconds. Well, actually you had 54 seconds right from the time that Jamar Chase. And so I just think that that is a legitimate, questionable uh you know, problem with what the Bengals did at the end.
2: The game changed so much and really in real time, less than a minute, Peter. When the the Bengals got the ball in that last drive deep in their own territory, boom, boom, two completions, all of a sudden they're at midfield, a minute left. And we all kind of look at the clock and you're like, a minute, Evan McPherson, two two timeouts left. I mean, the advantage you have there with the timeouts and a kicker you believe in, you can work the middle of the field. You can work it short. You can be patient. Two little plays over the middle and all of a sudden you call those timeouts and you're ready to kick a field goal. Yeah, and I kind of echo what you say. It's it's easy to do this two days later. I mean, we realize that we're looking back with the advantage of time. Uh, but in the moment, I did think that as well. And I also want to zoom out a little bit to what you said right away about Zach Taylor. Hard to nitpick too much. Uh, we're all still in the moments of looking at all the little things that mattered and what they did well or didn't. Right. If you think about it this way, I mean, Zach Taylor going to the Super Bowl with Joe Burrow. What if the Jets go with Zach Wilson? next year what if the jaguars go with trevor uh, trevor lawrence next year it's the same thing the Bengals had won six games total the yeah. last two years with a second year really does
1: open up so many possibilities oh my gosh right? as yeah.
2: a fan it's just fun to think about but as we all talk about and discuss what the Bengals could have done better let's not forget that this is the same thing as the jets or the jaguars going to the super bowl next year what they just pulled off
1: yeah You know, I want to just say one other thing. The easiest storyline right now, absolutely easiest storyline, is that, well, the Bengals enter the offseason. they got to improve their offensive line. No crap, Sherlock. Of of course they do. But I I think that you can't be so monofocused on one issue when you're trying to put your team together. Of course, they need to improve and improve significantly there. But I'd also just say one other thing. I think this is going to be a learning off season two for Zach Taylor. And the thing that I really like about Zach Taylor is that I covered, We, we I think we talked about this on a pod. One thing I like about Zach Taylor is that after the game against San Francisco, where they ran Joe Mixon twice late in the game, instead of putting the ball against a very good defensive front, instead of putting the ball in Joe Burrow's hands and letting him make a play. And Zach Taylor, after the game said, you know, I'm probably going to look at that think about that play tonight, those plays tonight, and it'll, it'll bother me that, you know, maybe I should have put the ball into Burrow's hands. And what I like about that is that he doesn't, he doesn't have an imperiousness about him. He doesn't have the, hey, my way right or wrong. He says, and rightfully so, that maybe I made a mistake. And I think he's going to feel the same way about the end of this game. And quite honestly, good for him. I, I, don't, I don't want in my coach, if I love, if I have a team that I love, I do not want my coach uh, to, to, to always say, hey, listen, that was, a, that was the right call. We just didn't execute or whatever. So I, I do think in that way, I think he's going to improve in this offseason.
2: Yeah, before we move on from the Bengals, you, you had such a unique perspective, such a unique couple of weeks with Zach Taylor that I don't think anybody else had. You drove to work with him. When he was getting ready for the Super Bowl, yeah. you were with him in the moments afterward. Uh, a little bit of Zach Taylor perspective from somebody who saw him getting ready for the Super Bowl one on one, and uh, you were with him one on one afterward in some really difficult moments.
1: Um, I think I would just say two things about him. Number one, um, he reminds me in a very congenial way, in just a very pleasant way. He reminds me a little bit of Joe Burrow in that, you know, I tell the story about this season during the year. I, I talked to Burrow before that regular season game against Kansas City, and he said, and I said, well, and you got Mahomes this week. And in his two minute answer, maybe 90 second answer, uh, he never mentioned the, the words, the name Patrick Mahomes. And there's a reason for that, in my opinion. Um, and it reminds me of the really great players who, who think when there's a question like that and asked to them, well, Patrick Mahomes has got to play Joe Burrow this week. And I think the same thing when I talked to Zach Taylor in the car driving to work, I said, man, Sean McVay, this is cool kind of a mentor of yours, everything like that. And I don't want to say he stiffened and he didn't like the question, but I could tell from the way he answered, he basically said, hey, everybody's going to make a big deal of that storyline and I don't care. You know, he said, I love uh, Sean McVeigh, but there's not a soul in this organization who thinks, ooh, Zach Taylor against Sean McVeigh. And he said, I certainly don't think that. So I think Zach Taylor, to me, has the ability to say, I'm pretty good at my job too. That's one thing I like about him. The second thing is, I think he's really made, he's, he's really tried to make the environment around his team one in which his employees, his players love coming to work. And we talked about it you know, on the last show, about Bengals Jeopardy, quarterback Jeopardy. And Zach Taylor has the assistant receivers coach, Brad Cragthorpe, who we told in the summer, who who had experience with this game, hey, listen, part of your job this year, even though you're not with the quarterbacks, part of your job this year is you are gonna make up the 25 questions plus final Jeopardy every week. And you're Mm -hmm. gonna run the game quarterback Jeopardy. So Brad Cranker said, okay, coach, whatever. But that became an important thing to Zach Taylor. Make coming to work fun, interesting. Keep the attention of your players. And I wrote something last week in my column about a conversation I had with Nathaniel Hackett, uh, the new Denver coach. And one of the things that he's doing, Paul, is he's hiring for his coaching staff a teacher for the coaches, who's going to examine everything about how they teach and how they coach. And he's going to have this guy suggest things to the coaches. Now, a lot of times you get old fashioned coaches. Can you imagine someone walking into the Iowa football program you know, when you were there and there's Hayden Fry, this old grizzled, and I don't mean this in a negative way, this veteran coach, Hayden Fry, having somebody say, hey, by the way, here's how you should teach.
0: Get out of
1: uh, here. You know? Yeah. And, but but now these days where, you know, no meeting should be past a certain amount of time. No. And and he made the point to me, Nathaniel Hackett, it's imperative for coaches to be able to reach players all day. So figure out ways, constant breaks, let them use their phone at certain periods of the day. It, what, all that kind of stuff. And I find it really an interesting thing that Zach Taylor is really focused on teaching. So those are my couple of thoughts.
2: I, really interesting, Peter, all the ways that, the, that these coaches, a lot of the younger coaches age-wise, or thinking about non-traditional ways to get better and to have a coach who's not worried about the X's and O's and just paying attention to the environment. A pretty good idea. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Paul, let's, let's turn it around a little bit and look at the Rams offense against the Bengals defense. And, and, and I'll just start off by, by saying I was really impressed with the Bengals defense in this game. Yeah. Really impressed uh you know, they've got two guys in the middle of their of their defensive front that, you know in Reader and Hill who really supplement well what goes on on the outside, you know, especially with Trey Hendrickson. and Logan Wilson, that's one of the best games I've seen yes. a linebacker play in a big spot. And man, I did not like. Uh, the interference no. call or the holding call that they made on him. I mean, there was it, late in the game, obviously, everybody has complained about it that, you know, for everybody to know everybody to remember this play, uh, Logan Wilson is on Cooper cup. Uh, it's I think third and eight, third and goal from the eight yard line with about a minute 50 to go. And Logan Wilson covers Cooper Cup in the short area, right over the line of scrimmage. And at about the three or four yard line, he gets called for defensive holding. Man, a very, very rough call, I thought. The other calls I thought were okay. Yep. Uh down the stretch of the game. Eli Apple did interfere, I thought, with Cup, uh, you know, on the on the play, two plays later. And obviously the bad hit by Von Bell on on Cooper cup and the holding call on the Rams on that play. Those, those were fine. I did not like the Logan Wilson call, but anyway, you're overriding thoughts now about the Bengals defense in this game.
2: I thought the Bengals defense, I uh, like you, Peter. I thought for the most part, they were, they were, they played really well. There were a lot more little victories in those four quarters for the Bengals defensively than there were big losses. I thought two things really stand out amidst a lot of their success and a lot of the positivity there. Two of the biggest plays in the game, that first touchdown pass by Matthew Stafford and the last touchdown pass by Stafford, they caught by formation exactly what they were looking for. They got the matchups they wanted. And in the end, in huge moments, they got a defensive back by himself without any help on OBJ while he was still in the game and Cooper Cup with the DB and his head turn. Straight up man to man, no safety help. He's turned around. He never saw the ball. First touchdown yeah. and the game winning touchdown. So, I mean, is that a scheme problem? Maybe. Is it a personnel problem? You mentioned a lot of people saying they have to go out and get better on the offensive line. Maybe you have to get some better corners that can get their head around if you're going to play man coverage without safety help in those two situations. And
1: Paul, Paul, I'll just tell you this. I thought Louie Anarumo's had a great postseason. I don't think when he looks back at those two touchdown uh, yeah. passes that he's going to be very happy. And here's the biggest reason why. On that first touchdown to OBJ, which I thought was a beautiful sort of kind of quasi-wheel route uh, yeah. by by OBJ, uh, you, you, might, you could also call it a corner route because that's in essence what it was. But uh, on that play, here's what's most alarming to me. The Bengals only rushed three on that play. And this is the first touchdown of the game early. The Bengals only rushed three. And yet, even though they only rushed three, both Cooper Cup and Odell Beckham Jr. were single covered. Yeah. Yep. On that play. How can you allow that to happen? And the, you know, the great thing is, and I forget who it was, it might have been a woosier on cup. He had a blanketed. There's no way that you could have thrown to Cup. So great, great play by, and I think it was a woosier, I might be wrong. But this particular play when When Lou Anarumo looks at it, he says, man, I I mean, what are are we doing here? We got eight in coverage. yeah, And we account for the two best receivers and only options that Matthew Stafford wants to use. And we got six guys just running around out there. And that bothered me. The second thing that bothered me is that OBJ goes out of the game. And in the last uh, five minutes of the game, Uh, Matthew Stafford, it was clear, clear that all he was concerned with was trying to win the game with Cooper Cup. Eight targets to Cooper Cup in the last five minutes. Now, one of them was nullified because of that uh, offsetting penalty, uh, you know, with him, Cup getting earholed by Von Bell in the end zone. But okay, so take that away. Seven targets to Cooper Cup in the last five minutes, you knew that they were going to him, absolutely knew, and yet you look at that play over and over again with Cooper Cup on Eli Apple single covered. Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Explain to me. I, I gotta. I gotta know. I, it just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense. I'll just say one other thing about Cooper Cup. After the game, I forget who said it. I really. I forget who said it, but one of the Rams said that they've never seen anybody play leverage as a receiver better than Cooper Cup. And during the season, I had a long conversation with him one day. He was riding home from work. One day, I think like in November, I wrote about him. And I remember talking to him about that word leverage. He probably used it 10 times in a 30 minute, 25 minute conversation. And the reason why leverage is so important to a receiver and everybody just, it like glazes over. The reason it's important is because exactly because of the biggest play in this Super Bowl, and that is the winning throw uh, to Cooper Cup. And, and, and think about it for a second, uh, Paul. This is, this is the thing that, at least in my opinion, that people don't think about enough when they look at uh, when they look at what wins and what loses football games. But on this play, which you know, I had McVay draw up crudely for me after the game. It's called 15 Wanda, now X fade. Okay, and on this play, which is supposed to be a back shoulder throw to Cooper Cup. Uh in this at the side of the end zone. He doesn't want him to go all the way to the corner because what he wants him to do is he wants him to, as receivers call it, jab step so that he will get his body moving in a certain direction. And then he'll come right back quickly to the ball, which is thrown to his back shoulder. And Eli Apple at that point is just not going to have a chance because there's five yards between them and the corner of the end zone. And Eli Apple has to respect the fade on this play. And Matthew Stafford basically threw the ball to his back shoulder and it wasn't even a contest. And that is why I think the word leverage is so important because if you get your body in a specific way to get that defender to think you're doing that,
0: That is everything, and that is really winning football. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
3: What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremangely, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America into America presents uncounted millions, the power of reparations, a black history month series, new episodes drop Thursdays. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. For
0: the world's greatest athletes. This Is the showdown we've been waiting for?
3: There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. World
0: Go for the United States. Unbelievable!
3: And
2: when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this. How about that? An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics. This summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock. A couple other parts about that game winning play, Peter, that really, I think, play off of what you pointed out there with leverage. If you go back and watch that game and watch that play and hit freeze right before the snap, Stafford and Cup know exactly what they're getting because the defensive backs for the Bengals, Eli Apple, we're talking about here, they give away the two biggest tells that any quarterback, any receiver wants in that situation the defensive back lined up to the inside of the, of the two receivers. So on yeah. the outside, it was Cup. On the inside, it was scaronic. Clearly, it's man-to-man because there's no safety over the top. So you know that, yeah. first of all. Okay, what kind of man-to-man is it? Well, each one of those cornerbacks were lined up about a yard to the inside of the receiver, staring at the receiver. So with as veteran as Cup and Stafford are, they're like, okay, I've got man-to-man coverage. There's no safety help, and he's shading me to the inside. So I have the outside open anyway. So to that leverage point, he gives a couple hard steps inside, which is where Apple wants to go anyway. That's where he's playing him, and it's wide open to the outside. One other point about that, and I don't know if McVeigh planned this or not, but if you can buy formation, if you can put your guys into the boundary, what do you have? You have a shorter throw. You usually have to get to the wide side to get a look you really, really want. But if you go to the short side, you have one-on-one, and the best receiver in football is literally 10 yards away from your quarterback instead of 30 yards away from him, which he would have been to the boundary. So the whole thing just lined up really, really well for Stafford and Cup.
1: You know, I saw McVeigh at the party. Uh, i made my way over to <laughs> the party was in an aer- airplane hangar at a private airport, Hawthorne Airport, probably about two miles from uh, SoFi. And I'll tell you what was really interesting that he said he said that uh ha, first of all, how about Cooper cup making that play like three snaps after he got absolutely ear hold uh yeah. how about him having you know the the you know the toughness and the ability to to come back from that to make that play? That's one thing, but he said the second thing is. That was OBJ's play, basically. OBJ normally in that play would be the X receiver, the receiver that is closest to the boundary, the receiver that is the wide receiver. And Cooper Cup on that play normally would be the slot receiver. But because the Rams trust Cooper Cup to be able to play every position in the root tree, and because this was the biggest play of the year, they put him out in OBJ's spot, and they knew he was going to make the play. And look, we'll talk about MVP in a minute, but in my opinion, I voted for Cup for MVP before I even knew anything about that. And that makes me feel a lot better about, about my vote when I heard that story from Sean McVeigh.
2: Absolutely. And uh, I'll just take it right to the MVP uh, thought there, Peter. And in the moment, right at the end of the game, I would have voted for Cooper cup 10 times out of 10. I mean, it wasn't just the winning touchdown. He had the, the winning run or the, the run that picked up the first fourth down, and fourth one. Down. Yeah. 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 He had an awesome play early in the game where he caught a check down on the sideline where you normally think, okay, he's going to run out of bounds. He turned it inside and picked up, I think about 20 more yards that led yeah. to the first touchdown. Uh, so I, I would have voted for him in the moment. The more I think about it and the more I go back, I would have vote now or I'd vote right now for Aaron Donald, uh, not only for those last two plays, but just for the fact that that Joe Burrow, after being over 50% on third and fourth down in the AFC title game, they were under 25%. Yeah. Somebody deserves a lot of credit for that. And I think Aaron Donald is the one that you point to the most.
1: Yeah, I, I get it. And <clears throat> I absolutely see everybody who says I would vote for Donald. I like that. Uh, I think my overriding opinion on this is that after, you know, they played the last 35 minutes of the game without Odell, 33 minutes of the game without Odell Beckham Jr. And I know Paul from some of their people, I know how huge a part of the game plan. Odell Beckham Jr. was so for the last 30 and you saw that remember the play it was you know Matthew Stafford gets an interception on it he throws a ball on an easy little crossing route a easy little in cut for Skoronek you know the the backup receivers with the injuries to Woods and to um, uh, Beckham at Woods earlier, obviously, with those two injuries, he's got to play, and he's got to play a big role. To say he's not ready for prime time would be an understatement. Yeah. But anyway, the ball was right in his hands, and he like handed it to yeah. I forget who intercepted it, Woozy, I think, uh, on a platter. And and so that is what the Rams had for the last thirty three minutes of this game. Yeah, and somehow some way. Cup got open enough times to make enough plays. Paul, I'll just tell you this. When I walked out of the stadium that night, I'm walking in my car, Don Bon Vasudo, my editor, and I were at the game. And when I walked out of the stadium that night, I, you know, all these thoughts go through your mind. And I said, one of the thoughts I had was, uh, Cooper Cup is going to be wearing a gold jacket one day. Hmm. And I mean, obviously, Aaron Donald, if he retires, which he might, uh, he, he doesn't have to play another step he he could he would have been wearing a, war, a gold jacket one or two years ago if he never right. played again but but I thought that's how great overall Cooper Cup was in this game so I take your Aaron Donald I respect your Aaron Donald but I absolutely would have voted for Cooper Cup in this game for MVP so there you go
2: yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, go ahead. P. I was gonna say it's certainly one of the Super Bowls. I remember being at the one in Jacksonville, I think, when Deion Branch was MVP, and you're really thinking, God, who, who should I vote for? And right, you know, juxtaposed that with this one where you could make such a good argument for Cup for Donald, and actually a little bit for Stafford, too. Maybe not as much, but I mean, I think there's a fun conversation to be had there. So, no right or wrong there. I, I certainly understand either one of those guys,
1: Paul. Do you have much? uh angst or much problem with the way the game was officiated?
2: I didn't like the call at the end that you talked about. So one uh, Logan Wilson talk- of the Bengals. Yeah. I love the fact that there weren't too many flags throughout the game. Uh, I like that they let them play. I wish they let them do that more often. I appreciated some of the... Even though it's easy to go back and watch in slow motion and say, oh, that was a foul. I would rather have it that way than the other way. I thought it was... I mean, it's it's difficult to use the word tragedy. It's just a football game, but it was really unfortunate that Wilson got that flag and that keep right. of the game because it was really textbook. I mean, you go to a high school clinic, you could show that like, okay, linebacker gets stuck on a really good receiver. How can he win? You show that play like he played it that well. So I hated that call, but I did like the fact that there weren't that many flags throughout the game.
1: Yeah, um, I think. That the biggest thing, I got a great letter from, uh, from, uh, from a, a, a reader who basically asked me, and he, he, I'll read you his letter. It's impossible not to notice that in the Super Bowl, the referees are keeping whistles in their pockets. It's also impossible to not notice just how much better the game is. The flow yes. of the game is amazing. Why doesn't the NFL do this year round? And I said, I said, I thought the flow was fantastic until the last two minutes. And I don't have a problem with any of the flags that were thrown other than the Logan Wilson one. And Paul, as we discussed, and I think this is a really interesting part of the whole discussion, and you can't ignore this fact, is that that play happened on an incomplete pass. On third and eight, yeah, and you know inside the ten, and what and in a four point game, so the 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 meaning of that is that if there is no flag on that play, Matthew Stafford has a fourth and goal from the eight yard line with down four, and they have to go for it, and my question is. My big question is, you know, what would they have called there and would they have been successful? And we'll never know. Yeah. And I never call a play like that or a call like that tragic or whatever. I mean, the official thought he saw something. Yeah. Uh, Again, I, I, it was a bad call, I think, but it wasn't a ridiculously bad call. I thought it was a bad call, but there was enough contact. Mm -hmm. beyond uh you know beyond the bump zone that you could you could definitely have said well was that a flag i just i just don't think based on the way the game had been officiated that that was even close to a foul but anyway be that as it may paul let's get to in our remaining time before we loop in ron rivera let's get to uh three other points Uh, coming into this off season. So last week I had heard a lot of stuff strong that Sean McVay's agent, I don't know, he may have more than one agent uh, doing his work for him, but his agent was talking a lot to the television networks. And basically the, the ask was what's your best job and what's your best offer, you know, and we'll come back to you and let you know that's what I heard was happening. I can't fault them for that. Um, I think my only issue would be that a year ago, exactly a year ago, Sean McVay basically went to the owner of the team and went to the top executives of the team and said, I wanna trade for Stafford. It's gonna cost a lot and we're gonna trade picks and we're gonna trade golf and and the the, the cap hit and, and the bonus money and blah, 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 blah is huge. I don't like if he would walk away after one year. I don't, I just don't really feel that 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 you should do that. And you can do whatever you want. And I understand, they got the win, he's gotta look out for himself, all that, all the rest of that stuff. And who could fault? I guess my overriding thought, in the moment, I don't like that. But I also think Sean McVay was hired in 2017 and in five years he brought the rams to the super bowl twice and he won one so i can't look at sean McVay and said oh you selfish so-and-so i i just can't i i look at it and say you know this just doesn't feel right him walking away right now but on the other hand i do think he's given them exactly what they wanted when they hired him 100%. 100%. Uh, it, it is
2: certainly a, a non traditional thought to think about a coach with the arrow still going up uh, in his mid to late 30s after he just won a Super Bowl walking away to TV. But the more I thought about it, Peter, I mean, what a perfect scenario for him. If he is at all feeling like burnout is somewhere down the road, you just won a Super Bowl with the amount of money that's available for an analyst to call a game right now on TV. If you're on one of the top couple of teams, he could walk away call the game on TV for two, three, four, five years. If he came back five years later, he's still an incredibly young head coach looking at 20 more years of coaching. So it's a scenario that we've never thought about, but he could go do this if he wants to for a while, rejuvenate if that's on his mind and still be an incredibly young head coach on the other side of it. So it's a minor spin-off story from the Super Bowl, but I'm kind of fascinated by it just because it's something we've never thought about before. And I think that option, once you look down that road of three or four years on TV, it's it's pretty interesting for him.
1: You know, this just came across, which interests me. And obviously we work for NBC, so, um, you know, it sounds a little Homer-ish to say this, but what I find increasingly amazing about what's going on with the NFL is that it doesn't matter – what anybody's political views are it doesn't matter it, the only thing that matters is we have this sort of electronic hearth you know whether people watch the game on a regular television you know on over the air or cable television or or any way or watch it on their phones but it's absolutely amazing to me that this is the la- this is the most watched television show in 5 years in the United States 101 million viewers on NBC and Telemundo alone but overall 112.3 million viewers because for people who say well what's the difference well yahoo for instance had the super bowl if you have you can just go on to yahoo and they did most of the national games as the year went on. I, I, I don't know how many they did, but uh, you could watch the game on Yahoo on your phone, you, you know? And so 112 million people, but here's the one last thing, 167 million people in the United States watched at least one minute of the Super Bowl. Wow. <laughs> It's more than half of the country. It just, it really kind of boggles the mind. I don't know if there's anything left to say, but I just wanted to
2: hear what you thought about that. Uh, those, those are giant numbers. And you know, we all kind of had a feeling it, it would be over 100 million in some form or fashion. A uh, funny comment at my house, I forget which one of my sons as we were watching the game. He asked, you know, how many people do you think are watching the game? And I said, it's going to be somewhere near 100 million. And he sat there for about 30 seconds and he goes, What's everybody else doing in the country? <laughs> He's like, you, you mean everybody like the Super Bowl's not in, on in every single house? I thought about it. I'm like, why isn't the number bigger? What, what is everybody else doing? I mean, isn't the Super Bowl but on you know form old fashion?
1: Paul, I in the press box on Sunday, I sat uh, Dom, my editor and I sat next to Amy Just. She covers uh, the New Orleans Saints. Uh, she's a friend of mine, very good young writer. And we were talking and she mentioned that, oh, well, my dad's not watching the game. He has no interest in sports. Mm-hmm. And I said, what do you think he's doing? And at one point she looks at her watch. She goes, well, let's see. He probably just woke up from his nap and he's thinking, what am I going to make for dinner? Um, and he's and but she said he would not, would never have a football game on. And so yeah. I, I think we get in our little cocoons, yeah, right. our bubbles. And we think, oh, what, what is everybody else doing? I forget where I saw it, but I saw a picture of like some New York restaurant at seven o'clock Sunday night uh, and it was mobbed. So, you know, I mean, you know, the life goes on right? some people. Yeah. And look, this isn't just because some people are not crazy about the long-term health effects of football and don't want to watch it. You know, they don't want to support, you know, football. Sure. I just think, You know, there are other things in life that people like. And, you know, maybe maybe we just don't know enough of those people. Maybe we're missing out, (laughs) Peter.
2: Maybe we should have been at one of those restaurants in New York doing something else.
1: (laughs) Paul, um, last two quick things. One, what you make of Aaron Rodgers accepting the MVP and going into a long spiel, in which, at the end of it, uh, I texted... uh, My buddy Rob Domovsky works for ESPN and covers the Packers and said, I I have no clue, Rob. And I don't I I mean, everybody look, you know, tries to divine and pick out the words of what Rogers is saying. I guess the only thing I would say is that he sounds like a guy who's very much open to staying in Green Bay. But I get the feeling when somebody says, well, I'll I'll have my decision here shortly or however he worded it. It sounds like to me that he's decided what he wants to do. Absolute gut feeling. I mean, I don't know, truly don't know, but my gut feeling is that he would want to stay in green Bay after listening to him talk the other day.
2: I think, I think it's one of two things. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Peter, when we talked about him with Brady as well, my gut feeling is that he'll be back in green Bay and he'll find a way to make sure Devonte Adams is there as well. Um, I would raise the possibility even more now than I, than I thought a couple of weeks ago of him not playing. I don't think he'll play somewhere else, but I could see him walking away. Uh, he, he's a guy who, A, has a lot of other interests and B, he's, he's not shy about letting people know he has other interests and that he would be fine yeah. without football. So uh, I think he comes back. Uh, but I think that option too is just walking away and being done.
1: You know, if he stays or retires, and if russell wilson stays and you see the seahawks are adamant that they're not trading him
4: yeah
1: it's a very interesting quarterback market i've got eight guys written down that hey what happens in this place to this guy we have no idea yet what's going to happen to deshaun watson he needs to find an end game for all of these lawsuits This cannot go on. It's been going on for a year. He needs to figure out a way. And look, this sounds totally in a whitewash way. And I don't mean it to be that, but he needs to find a way to make that stuff go away. Hmm. And I don't mean that he should, oh, quietly pay people off and say, hey, here I am ready to play. I don't mean that. I mean that, you know, Right now, I can tell you that there's one team that's very interested in Deshaun Watson that is going to make a decision about its quarterback future before the draft. And they're not touching Deshaun Watson uh, at all, unless this is absolutely finalized. And as this one GM has told me, we need to know from the league how many games he'll miss. Right. I used to. if If he's suspended, so. Yeah.
2: Right, yeah. I used to work with a GM, with, with a former NFL GM, longtime GM at NFL Network. And I felt like there was once a year in the free agent season, end of the draft season, where a big-name, super-talented player with a lot of upside, his name would come up, but there was just some kind of stuff. And there's a lot that could yeah. go underneath stuff. But there was a lot of stuff with that player. And he said, we would always get to the conclusion, let somebody else do it. There's enough yeah. of that stuff, whatever variety it is, where – God, I love the thought of him playing well here, but you know what, let's let somebody else make that potential mistake or that risky move. And I think there's probably a lot of teams feeling that way right now.
1: So the last thing I just wanted to discuss was sort of the quarterback musical chairs of this offseason in a little bit different way than that. But I believe there are somewhere between 10 and 12 teams that have something between a desperate quarterback situation and a legitimately uh, unsettled one, and you know, just to, to pick out three teams that I think right now uh, are absolutely—I mean, you know, everybody knows Denver is going to be in the market, and, and that looks like because of everything involved, a general manager desperate to straighten out the quarterback situation. A Nathaniel Hackett, a quarterback guy uh, at the helm. They want to get an answer there. We know that. But the three other teams that I think are going to be very desperate to the point where there might, and, and I mean, you know, there might be a bidding war for like a Jimmy Garoppolo as much as people would say, oh, that's crazy. But Carolina, Washington, Pittsburgh, every one of those three teams does not, in my opinion, does not have the long-term quarterback on the roster. And if that's the case, then they're all going to be looking. And at the end of the season, I mentioned that my line of demarcation for Jimmy Garoppolo was about Pittsburgh at number 20 in the first round. Seems fair to me that Garoppolo's value as a sort of a tarnished guy in terms of ability and injury that Mm. if you have Jimmy Garoppolo on your team, you better have a backup quarterback you feel really good about. Minimum Colt McCoy, you know, Mm. but honestly, better than Mason Rudolph or Dwayne Haskins, I would say. But, you know, so I kind of look at this and I say, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo is the beneficiary a lot of this, or uh, conversely the 49ers because garoppolo is going to be able to find a home and the 49ers are going to be able to get good value for him
2: i would give up a, a first round pick in the back half of the first round like you mentioned 20 there peter i would do that all day long on both sides because if you think yeah. about it you know, whether you, you want to go back two years or 20 years you spend a first round pick on a quarterback coming out of college is it 50 50 at best that he's going to be even a decent player There's some home runs in there, but they're always strikeouts too. And with Jimmy Garoppolo, he you're starting with, he's at the very least pretty good. And I'm not going to argue with you if you think he's really good. So to give up a a 20th pick or lower or around there, I would do that all day long for a veteran quarterback. Who's got a few more years. Who's got a lot more good than bad about him.
1: As would I. Um, Hey, well, we've gone on a bit and I hope everybody's enjoyed the discussion A little bit of a review and preview let's get to my conversation at the super bowl with washington head coach ron
0: rivera he was good enough to spend some time via zoom here's ron rivera reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing Uh, (laughs) that's definitely not a problem Uh, reese's you did it you stumped this charming devil
3: what if millions of Black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremangely, as I explore the untold story of one of the only Black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of Black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. New episodes drop Thursdays. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So, Ron, you know, you've had one of the most interesting first couple of years in a coaching job that a coach could ever have because you've been involved in so many other things other than just simply coaching a football team. What has that been like? And have you started writing the chapter in your book uh, that will be all about life that has nothing to do with football?
4: Um, I have. I've taken notes. That's for sure. I really have. Um, You know, because someday I do, I do hope to write a book uh, about some of the situation circumstances I've gone through my entire career as a uh, head coach. You know, there's uh, some really good times and interesting things that came out of Carolina as well, but it's been different because, you know, everything for the most part does cross my desk. Um, And it's been uh, a, a, at times, you know, some really good things and at times some tough things, some things that, you know, are all part of, you know, what we call, you know, culture train change. And that's one of the things that we talked about when I first got there is that we wanted to change the culture. We want to try and create a culture where it's sustainable. It's a winning culture that we can build off of and go forward. And, 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 you know, the, the first year was a little bit of a, a, I don't know a little bit of something that was different and special at the same time. You know, we had to go through a lot of social things. Um, We had to we had to try and fight through a lot of the stuff that had happened historically with this this organization prior to us getting here, and just trying to get those things back on track. Um, And then at the same time, trying to develop and grow our football team. And and you know, we went out and we win the division, which was a little bit of a um, you know something different as well. So that creates a whole new set of expectations. Uh, going into the second year. And I think the expectations of the second year are a little bit out of, um, out of kilter just because of what happened and, and and trying to get those back in line to where our, we, where I believe they need to be. And, and I feel pretty good about where we are heading into our third season.
1: So Ron, uh, you, I wonder how much like daily contact in the last couple of years, have you been able to have with Daniel Snyder, who is obviously your boss -hmm. But he has been in and out because of his discipline from the NFL. So, how much have you talked, and do you feel like uh, what do you feel your relationship is like with him?
4: I think it's pretty good. You know, when I first got here, one of the things that I did was, you know, he and I talked almost daily for the first few months. And because I wanted him to be up on as to what I was doing and how things were going, and just wanted to kind of help him get a feel for who I am and the direction I was, I was taking the football team. And then we kind of slowed it down or about once every three or four days. And then as we progressed even further, it got to about once, so once a week, if something came up and, and and he needed to talk to me, he would reach out or vice versa. And we kind of carried it throughout the year. And then, you know, when the situation obviously changed, um, you know, we hired a, a club president um, and, and, with, with Jason Wright as the club president, he and I talk once a week for the most part now. Um, there was a period of time that I wasn't talking with Mr. Snyder as much as I was talking with Mrs. Snyder. Uh, every now and then I would reach out to Mr. Snyder and just give him an update. But I, I, I for the most part were, was interacting with with Mrs. Snyder who was taking over the daily operations of the organization. Um, and then recently I've reached out to the owner and, and he and I have, try to talk now a little bit more um, and really trying to explain where we're headed coming up into this next season, obviously with what's going on in free agency, what's going on in the draft. Um, you know, what we're waiting to see what happens with some other players, obviously. Um, and it's been good. It really has. And, and again, I think a lot of it has now to do with as we go forward, because I've said it the third year is where I expect us as a football team to, to, to take another step.
1: Has it been very much of a drag on you having to spend all this time away from the football team on things like the team name and on the uh, the harassment lawsuit and all that what How have you been able to keep your kind of priorities in order throughout all that?
4: Well, I think first and foremost um, to me the the, the the change of the name obviously something that, that, that came up, you know, during the whole social situations and it, it, it was something that needed to be done and something that, you know, we as an organization grasped fully um, and really dug into it to, to try and make sure we create and pick a name that we felt really kind of um, best represented us as a football team and then us as a community as well. And uh, so that really wasn't as much, I, I think, I think some of the other things obviously the, the off the field stuff you know we we try to compartmentalize it with the players and get them to understand that hey these are the things that focus and re- really are important to us as far as football is concerned the other things obviously are our social issues are issues that the the organization as a whole as opposed to just football has to deal with and so really just trying to keep it separate so when you know, that saying that 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 I've had that, that I've used, that, that I've heard people say is be where your feet are. That's what I really try to do. So when I was involved with the players, when I was involved with the football team, the football activities, it was really focusing on them and on the team. And then away from it, I try to keep it separate. Um, and it, it's been good because with Jason right here now, uh, he, he Jason is terrific at what he does. And, and he really tries to separate certain things so that when it is time for, for, for me to step in, it's really about, you know, hey, coach, this is what's happening. These are how things are, are going. You know, you got a thought or an opinion, and then he and I would, would discuss certain things. But he keeps things to a minimum as far as outside of football for me. He really does. He, he's terrific at what he's doing as, as our president. So,
1: Ron, I look at the two teams in the Super Bowl, and I see two teams that have risen a lot in the span of one year because of their quarterback play, particularly in Cincinnati. And I look at your team, and, man, it looks like you could go a lot of different ways at quarterback. Run down your quarterback situation, and do you have any idea right now who's going to start for you opening day?
4: Well, yeah, it's a great question, Peter, because it's one of the things that uh, is really driving us this this, this uh, off season as far as our personnel department and our coaching department. Um, the biggest thing, more so than anything else, is we do. We do have to find out and establish who is going to be our, uh, our franchise quarterback. Um, I was fortunate in Carolina. We had that from, from, from the beginning. You know, we drafted Cam Newton number one overall. And for seven quality seasons, we, we, we got good play out of that position. And it's unfortunate because then he hurts his shoulder, he hurts his foot, and, and things kind of go south. And it really, really reemphasizes, reinforced for me, just how important finding that guy is. Um, you know, one of the things that we talked about doing in the offseason last year was trying to find a guy. We tried to make a couple of moves that went on and and that didn't work for us. So we felt and we believe that if we can put the rest of the pieces in place and then go forward this season, season three, if we can find that guy, we feel pretty good. You know, we've got the number six rated offensive line in the NFL um, from last year's uh, PFF. Um we have a 1,000-yard receiver back-to-back back in Terry uh, McLaurin. And then we also had a 1,000-yard rusher this past year, Antonio Gibson. So if we feel like we have enough quality players and tools on the offensive side, that if we can find that guy, we can ascend. We can ascend pretty pretty well in our, in our division, in our conference, and in this league. So um, finding the quarterback, obviously, having that guy established for us is one of our priorities this offseason. season.
1: How close do you think you ever came to uh, getting Matthew Stafford in that very frenetic time uh, that weekend a year-plus ago? Were you ever – do you think you were ever in the ballpark?
4: Well, we thought initially because, you know, we we had reached out and we had talked to them about, you know, what what our interest was, obviously. Uh, But then it happened very quickly. It really did. And and next thing you know, he's with the Rams, and and it's worked out very well for them, obviously.
1: So, Ron, I wonder uh, when John Madden died this year, I thought of you. We had a long conversation, I don't know, maybe two or three years ago when you talked about the influence that John Madden had, not only on your coaching career, but on your life. I bet people don't really know that story. Let's hear it
4: well you know it actually goes all the way back to 1977 you know after they had won the Super Bowl he was on uh, he was on vacation uh, early January and um, and I was just a high school kid at the time and I run into a meet him for the first time and you know me being you know um, one of these uh, one of these young kids is and, and just I'm seeing you know somebody who's a very iconic figure in the NFL already And I went up and introduced myself and, and, you know, we talked a little bit and he was gracious, very gracious. And I said to him, I said, well, you know, someday I'm going to play in the NFL. And I was, I was, (laughs) you know, I think I was in 10th grade at the time. And he looked at me, had that big old smile on his face. And he says, well, kid, go for it. And he wrote an autograph for me and I still have it uh, to Ron best wishes and good luck, John Madden. Uh, my mom has it at, at, at her house. I actually visited my parents recently, got a chance to go through that little scrapbook she has, and there it was on this little card that he assigned for me. And the, the thing that always stood out in my mind was how gracious he was. You know what I mean? He took the time to talk with me, answer my questions, um, and then had a comment for me. And, and so I, I never forgot that. And then as I went through my my NFL career and he covered, you know, covered me or covered our teams when I played and he would always come to town when he did our games and, and, and he'd always come by and see me or he and I would chit chat about something. Um, and then when I got into the NFL and became a coach um, going into my third season, Mr. Richardson, the former owner of the Panthers was friends with, with coach Madden and he reached out to coach and said, I I'm going to ask coach to talk to you if that's okay. I would love for him for, for, for you and him to spend time. So I reach out to coach, ask him if I can visit with him. And he said, absolutely. But before you come, I want you to go back and look at these games. I I know you got this record of three and 13, of games decided by a touchdown or less. I want you to go out and I want you to to look at those games and, and see what you could have done differently. So I do that. I go back. I look at those 13 games. I take all these notes. I write all these things out. Got a nice little report ready to go. So I fly out to his office in Pleasanton, California. And uh, we sit down. We kind of chit chat for a little bit. And just as we're about to start, I said, oh, I got that homework assignment you gave me. And he goes, oh. So I pull it out. It's about 15, 20 pages. And I go to hand it to him. and He goes, that's not for me. That's for you. I said, excuse me? He goes, what did you learn? Well, I said, you know, as I, as I started to flip through, I said, well, you know, like this instance, I kind of, you know, I, I, I went by the book. I did it the way you're supposed to. He goes, what do you mean the way you, by, by the book? He says, there is no book, Ron. You know that. There is no book. He said, you, you've played enough football. You know enough football. You've coached enough football to go by your gut instinct, by, by what you feel. He says, that's the thing you've got to understand. You've got to do that that's the best way to judge things to make decisions is because you've got enough experience, relying on your experience. There's no book, Ron. And from that point on it it made sense. It it hit me that, that, you know, what I was doing was safe. It was the safe thing to do. It was the least critical thing, uh, criticizable thing to do. Right. That's a word. Um, And so from that point, now I would get into game situations and I would think them through. You know, you get there and you say, okay, you know, okay, if we get the first down, game's over. Okay. Uh, If we kick the extra point, I mean, so if we kick the field goal, we go up by six, they can still score a touchdown and kick the extra point. So go for the first down. Why not? It's fourth and one, they're backed up if they, if you stop you their mentality is all we need is a field goal to tie their mentality is not about us so those things he really helped me to understand and that really changed my thought process going forward it really did and it really helped me and 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 i really do believe that that was really kind of the evolution i needed was to get away from being safe and go ahead and be be a little more daring um but based on my experience, on what I had gone through as a, as a player and as a coach. And, and, and he really made the impact that I think really helped me to, to, to break through and become the coach that, that, that I, I became and that I am.
1: You know what's so interesting about that? A lot of times when someone dies, people have platitudes. A great coach, a great man, great this, great that. There aren't a lot of people who have stories of someone that really helped their lives and their livelihoods. And you have one of those. You'll have that for the rest of your career.
4: And and you know what I've done with the Peters? I've used it as examples to other young coaches that have asked me questions about things. And I think that's the thing that I really do appreciate. You know, it's interesting. I was reading um, um, some Excerpts from his from his his um, Hall of Fame acceptance speech, and the one thing is, that I remember from it more so than anything else is that he's all about football. He coached football not because he loved the game or he was that's what he did. He was a football guy, and it's interesting because the one thing that stood out in my mind more so than anything else was when I went to his office in his parking lot. To the right was that seven man. Sled that he always talks about. Wow! Yeah, and and that was a real interesting thing to see and sit there and go, wow! You know, he really it really is there. He talks about it all the time, and it's there.
1: Yeah. So, Ron, I've got a little pet theory. This 180 degrees different from anything we've been talking about, but. There's been a lot of discussion about what to do to increase the prospects for black and minority coaches. You are one of five minority coaches right now in the NFL head coaches. And uh, most people believe that that's not enough. And my theory is and my idea is why not have every team in the NFL with at least one black or minority assistant coach who touches the quarterback every day, who touches the passing game every day. I was talking to Mike Loxley, you know, the coach of Maryland, uh, who's the head of the National Coalition for Minority Football Coaches. And he kind of is, uh, you know, like so many coaches are. You know, we don't have enough people in the pipeline that are moving up consistently, and not just for head coaches, but for coordinators. I just want to hear your thought on whether that makes any sense to you at all.
4: It makes a lot of sense to me. It really does. And it's something that um, I had actually have a conversation with Doug Williams about this last year. And now knowing that and thinking about that is something that I most certainly want to be aware of and work towards that. Um, I will say this too, Peter. The other thing I think we need to do is we need to create a situation, says circumstances, where we can take – um, minority coaches, black coaches, and put them in front of the decision makers in the off season. Okay. We have a combine, we have an owner's meeting. What's wrong with having a specific number of these guys available around interacting with the GMs, the presidents, the owners at some, some way to create an opportunity for, for them to be known. You know, it's like, it's like that saying in terms of, I, I have a, I have a friend who tells his salesman, that they have to know you, they have to like you, and they have to trust you before they buy from you. And I was I was, I was talking to him last night about this, and 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 he said to me, he said, "Rob, that's what it sounds like to me that 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 most of these guys are, are aren't known." Um, you know, my friend owns a trucking company. Uh, I mean, a, uh, a a trucking dealership. He's you know sells eighteen wheelers, and he was telling me that 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 it just sounds like your guys nobody really knows who they are and they need to be put in front of those people so they can develop these relationships. So I think that's a heck of an idea. I'd love to see us do something where we use the combine. We use the owners meetings uh, as an opportunity for there'd be some sort of situation where they can come meet these folks, talk to these people, learn who they are, let them learn who they are. Exposure is going to be the only thing I think that's really going to increase opportunities. And like you said, Peter, exposure to the quarterback, to the passing game, to the running game, to the offense, um, and then exposure to the decision makers. I think that gives them an opportunity to develop relationships that can help lead to more opportunities.
1: Ron Rivera, thanks so much for taking all the time. Good luck in year three with the Washington Commanders. I must say that I have not used the uh, team name uh, for the Washington football team in nine years. (laughs) So I'm kind of glad I can now call them something, even though I kind of like Washington football team. It was distinctive. It was fun.
4: (laughs) <laughs> yep, it was catchy. It was catchy. But I think commanders are going to grow on some people. And, you know, at the end of the day, though, Peter does come down to one thing and that's winning. Yep. So we got to get going.
1: Hey, listen, thanks so much, Ron. All right.
4: Thanks, Peter. Appreciate you.
1: My thanks in this post Super Bowl episode of the Peter King podcast to my partner at NBC, Paul Burmeister. And also thanks to Ron Rivera for his conversation on a lot of things involving the future. But I'm glad he got that John Madden story in. That's that's, uh, that's really kind of a heartwarming, heartwarming story. So thanks uh, for joining me this week, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Um, and next week, I'll be back in New York to do the podcast from the home office. Look forward to seeing you then. Have a great week, everybody.